we're in John. Uh, we're, we're working our way slowly through the book of John. And uh, we're in John chapter 12, if you want to turn there and, and read along, if you've got a Bible this morning. And it's a pretty famous passage. Um, it's called the Triumphal Entry and probably all the versions of the Bibles that we might have here this morning. Um, kind of is like a little subheading. It begins in uh, verse 12 of chapter 12. It's the triumphal entry, and it conjures up, if, if you've grown up around church or grown up in church, this passage will conjure up imagery that you've, you've seen your whole life around Easter. Um, it, it's, it's a famous passage that's got the palm branches and, and the hosannas and the crowds, and, and you'll, you'll think of plays and dramas and decorations at church and and it's all kind of around that Easter kind of time. Does that make sense? And that's this passage. And we'll begin reading in verse 12, and it says this, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Why didn't they understand it? Because there was something there that first that needed to be understood. It was a confusing, not altogether clear um, set of events. And so looking at this kind of set of events, and we hear that they did not understand all of it, well, it's because it's kind of confusing, everything that's going on here. And only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things um, to him. We'll just stop there. So Jesus is coming up. This is the last week of his life. He knows that he's going to be dying soon. And he's been doing some pretty crazy miracles lately, so word is out, and people are excited that now there is a, a guy, the Messiah, the one that was promised, the one that was supposed to be sent from God to do what? To save them. Hosanna, God save us. And so they're coming up, the one sent from God is here to save us, and they they are, are kind of saying, blessed is the king of Israel. So the one sent from God to save us is the king, the rightful leader, political leader of Israel. He's the one we're going to get behind, rally behind, follow, and he is going to set us free, free from what? Um, free from the Romans. Free from the people that are alien or foreign to that land that have them in some sense, under political control, the Roman government, this, this Roman Empire. And they are coming to this festival, the, the chief of all the festivals, this Passover, in the holiest of all cities, Jerusalem, where the temple is, and now there's the one sent from God, and they are exuberant, they are just fired up, they are excited, they come out with palm branches. Now, palm branches to us is really strange. So once a year, we have Easter services. We go to church, and they decorate with palm branches, probably the plastic kind. And, like, we kind of see that, and it's like, yeah, yeah. And so Easter becomes to us like going to dinner at Rainforest Cafe. You walk in, you're like, oh, yeah, good decorations. What am I going to have for dinner? Um, you know what I'm saying? It becomes background stuff. Palm branches in that culture was what they, they waved, what they brought out when, when there was a national political figure or a conquering like military general leader. This is like the height of political leadership comes out with palm branches. Uh, they would be brought up from Jericho not necessarily found right around Jerusalem, brought up from Jericho. And this was such a national symbol that when the Jews later revolted in the 60s against Rome, okay, 
on the coins that for that brief time, the, as they took over Jerusalem and before the, the Romans came in and squashed that rebellion, they kind of printed, they imprinted their own coins, their own money. And on it, there's the symbol of the palm branch. So this is a military, political kind of symbol, this palm branch. So if you think of like 4th of July or after we win World War II, we're waving like American flags. You know, everywhere there's this waving of the flags and it's this exuberant celebration. You get the picture? Okay, they didn't have flags back then. Not like we have flags, you know. Palm branches, in some sense, is this national symbol of pride and of authority and of the, the politics and the military. And they're waving these things, and it's crazy. It's glorious. It's magnificent. It's, it's big. It's not like what we think, like the Rainforest Cafe kind of a deal. Like they see Jesus as the guy to save them. He is exalted. He's high. He's the king. He's first among everybody. He's lifted up. They're celebrating him. Um, this is standard stuff. Yet, Jesus comes in and he grabs like a little donkey, a little mule, a little like non-glorious animal to kind of humbly sit on the back of and ride into town. Now the Romans were famous for the, the chief general, the conquering hero, the, the Caesar, the, the ruler, for sitting on this big white horse. They were, they were famous kind of for making that a symbol. And so it's interesting, Napoleon, I, I got a picture for you. Napoleon had this picture painted of himself when they crossed the Alps, which had never been done with the heavy equipment, and they kind of a sneak attack and this huge military victory. And when he, they come back, he has this painting uh, done of himself, but this is actually what it looked like. Okay, he, he wanted his empire to be like the Roman Empire, and he uses the white horse as this symbol of glory, but when he crossed the Alps, it was on a mule. And um, there's a really interesting thing going on here. Jesus, in, instead of doing the horse, which he could have done, he does the mule. Napoleon wants the propaganda. He wants the glory. He wants, he wants to be exalted because he's that guy. Jesus says, no, put me on the back of a donkey. I'm not the guy they want me to be. Um, glory was this huge, huge thing in the ancient world. Uh, the Greeks, one of their views of immortality actually had to do with your name living on or echoing into eternity, that you would do something so great in this life that it would echo into eternity, your reputation, your honor, your glory. So they had these games like the Olympics and the laurel wreath, and it was these competitions, and it was all about the hero. And it was fascinating, Nero, who in the, in the 60s was this kind of really interesting emperor, uh, Roman emperor, who liked everything Greek, and all the other Romans thought he was strange that way, like, but he really liked the Greek stuff. He went and entered into the Olympic Games in 67 in the chariot race, and even though he fell out of his chariot and didn't finish the race, he still won the race. He won every race he ever entered. It didn't matter what happened or where he finished, he won the race. And so, like, it's this interesting thing about glory and being crowned and given this honor and status and elevation. Um, and this is Jesus' setting in the ancient Near East. And so they are hailing him as the king of Israel with the palm branches coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus says, put me on the back of a donkey. There's, there's something going on here that is so essential and so core and at the heart of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do that we, we can't miss it. In the book of... Matthew, right before the triumphal entry, Jesus has these words for his disciples. He calls them together and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be uh, first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to talk in a few weeks about uh, Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and trying to communicate the essence of what he was, was here to do and to say what glory really meant. And so Jesus has this example all throughout his ministry in these words, and he says, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. That's the Father. See, I'm in relationship to the Father. It's him that you're supposed to look at. I'm just a good copy of that. He's the focus. He's the one that's really good. And then he, he talks uh, later about his proximity to the Father, that hey, I don't do anything on my own. Everything I say, everything I do is what I hear from the Father and I pass on. What, what he asks me to do, you see, I'm in perfect submission to him. The glory isn't mine. The credit is not due to me. I'm not the one to be elevated or to be worshipped. I am only doing, I'm, I'm being obedient to what he has asked me to do, the Father has directed me to do. And, and he says, my glory, what's good about me, what's noteworthy about me, my, my honor, comes from my proximity to the Father, my obedience to the Father. It's really huge because both Christians and atheists struggle with getting away from God in order to have glory. The atheist says the concept of God is oppressive. And it, and it tries to say, I have to behave a certain way, and there's a morality, and there's all these things, and I have to push the concept of God away so that I can be liberated to become who I want to be and do my own thing, to be free. And this is an oppressive, uh, slavish kind of morality that comes from God. Nietzsche, if you ever read the philosopher Nietzsche, the German philosopher in, in, in the late 1800s, thought it was that God, the belief in God and religion was for the weak. They couldn't attain glory on their own in this life, and so they would huddle together and talk about glory in the next life as a way of kind of turning the tables and making themselves feel like the winners, like the victors, like, like they were um, going to win. And, and he says that's weak, and we've got to get away from that so that the truly great individuals can pursue their own glory. And Nietzsche loved the Greeks, by the way. He says, so they can rise to the top, the, the overman, the superman, the one that rises above. And that's where true like immortality lies. And, and we've got to get rid of this slavish morality. So the atheists have to get rid of God to pursue glory. Most of us, if, if we're Christians or if we have some measure of belief, it's a different thing. It's at the level of faith. We feel like, ah, boy, if I really obey God, if I really follow God, if I'm really with God, it, I'm never going to really be able to stretch my legs to, to do what's really fun, or what, what's really going to make me happy, or what's really going to lead to the state of affairs or the life that I want. I, I, I just, I got to get a little bit of space from God to go out and make it happen. To prove myself, to elevate myself, to show to people my value. I, following God just doesn't allow for that. And, and so I've got I to gotta gain separation. We really struggle, don't we, with, with saying every day, God, I will, I will follow you. I'll do only the things you want me to do. Say only the things you want me to say. I will be in submission. It just We struggle with that. And Jesus, over and over, here his words to the disciples and his own actions are saying, you've got to understand it is an upside-down kingdom. It's a paradox. It's spiritual. Don't judge it with the eyes. But the one who is last, the one who's at the bottom, the one who's with God is really the one who's going to be liberated. It's the person that's going to be blessed. It's the person who's going to know and experience and have that fellowship with God. And when you run out on your own, you will be on your own. You will get what you choose, and that is separation from God. And you will kick and scratch and claw to elevate yourself, and the whole while, 
it's this futile effort. So Jesus sets up this paradigm, and, and he even teaches to us we've got to heed what we do. He says um, in one place, don't, don't take titles for yourself. And we really struggle with this. I struggle with this. It's like, you know, we didn't want to have a title senior pastor when we started the church because we didn't want to think in terms of a hierarchy. But then how do you differentiate roles for clarity? And so I, it's just a difficult thing. And that's why we don't, like, I, at least I don't like being called pastor. Some Ken. I was always Ken. And um, some of you like pastors like a low word, like, oh, it's icky. Some of you, it's like, wow, it's a term of reverence. But it's, it's a weird thing to be going by a title. And, and Jesus says, don't let people call you rabbi or teacher or doctor or whatever it is where you're trying to elevate or by doing so it elevates you above your common man, your fellow man, because you're here to serve them. So be careful what you take under yourself, the titles and things like that. And so Jesus is always providing this example of how we're supposed to live our life to find true significance, true happiness, true glory. He says, when we stand back and look at this whole thing, um, you're supposed to dive to the bottom when you feel like you're, you're supposed to rise to the top. Every day we wrestle and we fight and we're trying to rise to the top. And he says you're supposed to dive to the bottom uh, when you feel like you're supposed to rise to the top. And listen to what this passage says when it ends. It says, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him. Jesus' glory came from the Father exalting him to the right hand. Ah, God took this person who was in perfect obedience and submission and after it was all complete, lifted him to the highest place and said, this is glory. This is authority. This is honor. And so after, after God had glorified Jesus, they understood it all. Glory is at the center of this. He comes in and they're puzzled. Why is he on a mule? What they don't understand is a couple weeks later, they'll see that this whole spiritual reality that God is working up for us has to do with being last, not first. Serving others rather than being served. It's all about glory. So what I want to do this morning is, uh, is I'm going to bring up my friend Bill Cherivelli. And Bill and I have been talking for a year on this topic of glory. It's, it's uh, been a passion of his. Now Bill um, has been a branding guy his whole life. And so he owns Brand Navigation and Sisters um, and works with putting a face to things and has some amazing insights into what we as a culture do with this concept of glory. So the rest of the sermon is going to be Bill, I think, applying for us and helping us understand what we're doing with this concept of glory. So Bill. appreciate the opportunity, Ken, and uh, one thing I'd just like to do is just thank Ken, because uh, he does this every week, and I can't believe how much time and effort this takes, in, uh, takes. so if you don't mind just giving him a hand, because he does this every week. So, put my glasses on here. Well, I just, uh, being at Art Sunday, I just um, had the opportunity to spend a week over in Italy, and I'm Italian, and so where else to go but Italy? And it was an incredible experience. And talk about glory. Uh, you know, we saw things like this, and it was incredible. And uh, there's a few just things that kind of impacted me while I was over there. And speaking of glory, one, uh, obviously, is being in the design world was the fashion. The Italian people know how to dress. I mean, everything is fitted. Their shoes are perfect. I mean, you could be a gypsy on the street, and they still look cool. They wear the designer glasses. Um, so I really appreciated that. Another thing is um, is the art. I mean, if, you, if you're an artist, if you're a creative person, even if you just love art, you have to go to Florence, Italy. It's incredible. It's overwhelming. It's so filled with an expression of the talent of mankind and, and artistic expression and talk about glory. But the thing that really uh, I appreciated the most was my friend Francisco Corte over there. He's a Florentine. He grew up there all his life, and we had some great time, and he showed, showed us around, and he took us to some of the wonderful restaurants there, and there was this, you know, thinking about this whole topic of glory all week, and I've been sort of obsessed with this idea of glory for several years, and uh, there, we're in the restaurant, and he, and he lifts the, 
the wine glass and he, and he makes a toast. And he says, Fortuna a gloria. And instantly I was like, what did you just say? I mean, we don't make toasts like that. And, um, and he said, Fortuna a gloria. I said, what does that mean? He said, to fortune and glory. And I was like, wow, what a cool toast. But back in the States, I would feel a little bit, you know, sort of like, yeah, the fortune and glory, that's kind of weird for us, isn't it? But isn't that what we all sort of deep down inside really would love to have, is fortune and glory? I mean, it's cool. Um, but, and that's what we're really talking about today, as Ken mentioned, our hope of glory. And that's the title of, of uh, what I'm sharing today. And uh, I've always, uh, ever since a little kid, if you can go to the next slide, since a little kid, I've always wanted to, to be and accomplish something great, to be honest with you. I've always wanted to, to do something with my life and achieve something and make something of it and, in a sense, uh, be recognized for being good at something. Not in a, this boastful, proud way, but I just have always had this thing inside my heart that I wanted to do something with my life. And being from San Francisco, what other baseball team is there in the world but the San Francisco Giants? I mean, they're awesome. And I grew up, if you're anything about my age, I grew up with Willie Mays, Willie McCovey. That was the day of Bobby Bonds, Tito Fuentes, Jim Davenport. I mean, I loved those guys. And I used to dream of throwing the ball against the wall in the backyard, pitching against those guys, or making the great hit, and all that kind of stuff. But the truth was, I wasn't really very good. I was okay. I played Little League and all that kind of stuff. Played a little bit in high school. But I just wasn't that good, and I wasn't really good at anything. Uh, matter of fact, I had really poor grades and was really small. As a freshman, I was four foot ten, weighed 90 pounds. But I was the only guy that could lift his own weight in, in, uh, in uh, bench press class. So, but, you know, so that was not my, my, uh, my, my real uh, way to glory or personal significance. But w at a very young age, I began to draw. And my dad had these drawings in, the, in these drawers, and I used to copy them. And I used to just love to draw. One of my favorite topics was Snoopy. I would just, this was the pose that I drew. Over, I mastered this pose with Snoopy. And my mom began to notice that. She said, Bill, that is just so, that's really wonderful. And there was something that happened in me. It was like, it made me feel so good. Somebody was acknowledging me <clears throat> for what I did. And then it kind of, it kind of began to, uh, to fan the flame. I got interested in architecture. And Frank Lloyd Wright, there was, one of Frank Lloyd Wright's last building was right by my home. And I used to, go and sketch it all day long. And then, uh, you know, Walt Disney. I was just fascinated with the man Walt Disney. Talk about a creative individual. Amazing. Him as a person and what he achieved. But there was this one show, and if you're my age, you remember Bewitched. And uh, Samantha Stevens, obviously, was the Bewitched lady. And, but she had a husband, Darren Stevens. He was the original Darren Stevens. But what he did for a job blew me away. He went to work and he drew. I could, I'm like, that's in second grade, I remember. I want to be a commercial artist when I grow up. And so, really, that, that became, directed the whole course of my life. I was so into it. Everything I did, I just painted murals on my wall. I just did anything and everything. Drew logos for rock and roll bands. Anything I could do, I would do because that's what gave me this sense of significance and identity and I, at one point, said I was going to dedicate my life to design. And the truth is, is it's part of the reason why I came to Christ. Because once I achieved a certain level of significance, I also found that it was extremely empty at that point because the glory was very fleeting. But God has continued me in that, in that, in that industry, and, it's, and I'm extremely humbled and just thankful to be, to be doing what I do as an artist, as a designer, as a graphic designer. And it has given me a sense of identity. It has given me a sense of significance and accomplishment and meaning and contribution in my life. Um, if you can go to the next slide here. And I believe that everybody, everybody longs for a sense of glory in their life. You've heard the old saying that, that uh, your moment, this is your moment of glory, don't miss it, or just five minutes of glory. And the next slide. I mean, how do you, I, I mean, think of American Idol. I mean, I watch the show. It's like crazy. It's amazing how we get so caught up in it. 
and someone can, from total obscurity, can go to total recognition and, and, and fame and fortune and glory in a sense. I mean, think of Kelly Pickler. I mean, I don't know if you saw Kelly Pickler a couple years ago. I'm like, I found myself like bawling as she's like telling her story. And it's just amazing how we just get caught up. Go to the next slide. Um, I've, all, I've really been thinking a lot. Think about artists. If there's any artists or creative people in here or obviously some great musicians. We, we, it's really important for us to get recognition for doing that piece of work. We sign that piece of work. And that's extremely important. Matter of fact, an individual like Picasso, if it's signed by him, it's worth more money. He's not my favorite person as, a, as an individual. His work was incredible. Amazing. He was quite somewhat of an evil man. He would have these relationships with women. And if he liked them, he would give them a, a... When he got rid of them, he'd give them a painting with his signature on it. If he didn't like them, he'd give them a painting without his signature. And without his signature, it was worth nothing. Go to the next slide. And this is, uh, I think movies have it right. They understand this. It's incredible. This represents like the, you know, you're sitting, the movie's over, people start getting up, the credits are rolling. They give credit to everybody. They acknowledge everybody who worked on that film. Didn't matter if they're a creative person. They, they, they give glory to everybody. They share in the glory. Obviously, the more important you are in regards to the credit to that film, the bigger your name is. But think about it. Um, there's this, there's this book I read it's called a, a New Brand World, and it's written by a na man named Scott Bedbury. He was the sort of the branding guru over Starbucks and Nike for a few years. And he's talking to Dan Wyden of Wyden & Kennedy. It's an advertising agency in Portland. Great firm. They created the Just Do It campaign for Nike. And he's talking to him, Dan Wyden, who's, an, who's the account side of the business. And he says, how do, you, how do you inspire creative people? How do you do it? And he, and he turned to Scott and he said, Scott, we, you know, artists don't work for money like we do. He says, they work to be recognized. They work to be acknowledged. The personal glory for them is so important. Give them the credit. And I thought that's incredible because it's so true. It's not what's driven me all the years is to get rich off it because certainly it's amazing to me that you can actually make a living drawing. And if there's any artists out there, mom, dad, the starving artist thing, it's amazing what opportunities there are for the creative field. Encourage them. If you have a son or a daughter who's really interested in the arts, encourage them. They can do it. There's a lot more opportunity in that than being a pro quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. A lot more opportunity. But I find interesting in Genesis, and it says that God saw all that he had made. After all that he had created, the whole universe, he stood back and he said, it was very good. He acknowledged his own creation. I, I believe that that's why it's so important for us to acknowledge what we do as artists or creative individuals. The next slide. And this is really, really where I believe we were all created for glory. And that's why. That's why this longing, this sense of like, oh. You know, you're looking at like we can say, Napoleon. We long for this glory. It's part of the, the human drive, the human pursuit. Um, Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. All creation was created for his glory as an expression to glorify him. It's an expression of himself. And even mankind, it talks about in Isaiah 43, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So all heaven and earth, the universe, all of us were created for glory, and there's this longing in us to experience a sense of glory in our life. This is sort of a side note, once again, for creative individuals. And the very first thing that God reveals about himself in the Bible, the very first sentence is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the very first thing that God shares about himself. What an honor to be a creative person. It's really cool to be able to actually do that for a living or for a hobby. In a sense, you're expressing something at the very core of who God is, his creativity. If you go to the next slide, we all know this story about glory lost. There's a point in the garden where God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But they did. And there was glory lost. The glory of God departed from them. And there's this one verse, and this is, 
just, it's always fascinated me. And, um, and it's in Genesis, and it says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is before they ate of the fruit. And right after that, after they eat of it, it says, in their eyes of them were both open and they realized they were naked. So they were naked both times. And I'm like, what happened there? Something happened there. And I am definitely not a Bible scholar, but this is just sort of my crazy thinking and uh, something for you to consider. But I wonder that before the aid of the fruit, in a sense, they were covered in the glory of God. They were surrounded and consumed and caught up in the glory of God. They were looking at God's glory and not themselves. And after they ate of it, the glory of God departed. And all of a sudden, they realized they were naked. In a sense, they were exposed. There was no glory in themselves. And they were like, so what do they do next? If you go to the next slide, you know the old fig, fig leaves thing. What they do? They go and cover themselves with fig leaves. And I believe that this is sort of what has, has driven all mankind from the, from the garden, is to regain this sense of glory, this lost glory. And uh, Romans talks about, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all enter into this state, into this world, with this sense of no personal glory. And yet in us, and deep down in our heart, there's this longing for a sense of identity and meaning and a sense of glory in our lives that we were created for that glory. And basically, you go to the next slide, there's two, I believe there's two primary pursuits of glory. And you go to the next slide. It's basically the glory of the world, what the, glory, what the world says is glory, and what God says is glory. Go to the next slide. We'll start with uh, the world's glory, man's glory. And in a sense, man's glory are his coverings or his form of fig leaves. And in 1 John it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. And I first want to say that <clears throat> I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying the things of the world that God has given us, has gifted us, has, whether it's a, a wonderful home or a, a nice car. I mean, being Italian, I like nice cars. As a matter of fact, I have a, a, two, two Italian friends. It's really funny. It's kind of weird. It's like they're both Buddhists. They're both Italians, and they love cool cars. One loves a Ferrari. The other loves a Porsche. I'm like, I don't get that. I don't understand that. But anyway... Um, we all love beautiful things and wonderful things and enjoy the things of the world. So there's nothing wrong with that. But what I believe this passage is really talking about, if you give yourself if everything that you're all about to find a sense of significance and meaning in those things, a personal sense of identity, a personal sense of, of, of glory, that you give up God and, his, and, and his, his drawing to himself, that that's really what your life is about. Scripture says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does for his own personal glory comes not from the Father, but from the world. Go to the next slide. And uh, once again, there's nothing wrong with any of these people up here. I admire all of them for what they've done. But this really is what the world says is glory. This is what really where we find it whether it's in position and power, whether it's in money. I mean, we look to Warren Buffett as like a prophet. It's amazing. Amazing what happened in what's happened over the last two years in the economy. It's really interesting. We know people in the banking industry and people's characters kind of rise to the surface when some of these things are stripped away and the glory is not there anymore. It's amazing what happens to people when we find our sense of significance, when I find my sense of self significance and with a foundation is money or position or a title, like Ken said. Um, the hundred most beautiful people, how many, I mean, every day you're bombarded with what glory is in regards to personal beauty or fortune and fame. And, uh, or you might find it or I might find it in the school that I go to. The schools that I go to, Harvard is a great school. But if it's what gives you your sense of personal glory, it's fleeting. We wear Nike. You ever think about symbols on your shirts? It's amazing. I think about it all the time too much because I'm in that business. It's amazing, the psychology behind that. In a sense, we share in that glory. Or the car that you drive. I remember when I bought, I have to admit, it's one of my weaknesses. I like cool-looking cars. And uh, when I bought my Audi, I felt different. I felt better about myself. It's weird. 
It's really weird. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but I do. You go to the next slide. Um, like I mentioned, I can't mention, I've been in the brand, I've been designing logos since I was in second grade. And, um, and it's really fascinated me, this whole industry. Um, please, if there's any Harley Davidson writers out, out there, please don't beat me up afterwards. I know you're probably big and burly and all that kind of stuff. But there's nothing wrong with Harley Davidson motorcycles, obviously. But these, it's interesting, in working in this industry, these symbols are more than just graphics. They stand for something. And, and they understand the whole psychology behind the human condition and how we long for a sense of significance and belonging and how we associate with these brands makes us feel different about ourselves. In a sense, we find out who we are by who we want to be by sharing in the glory of these brands. And uh, for instance, Banana Republic, I, I don't know about you, but I hate going, anybody, I hope there's nobody who works in Banana Republic in here, but I hate going into Banana, Banana Republic. But they're the only ones that design like fitted clothes, and I like modern Italian fitted clothes. But every time you go in there, it's like you feel like you have to have the comedy, you're just bombarded by them. But like Ori, think about sports. Think about sports, and sorry for any Beavers fans out there, there just wasn't room on the slide. Um, um, think about it. You go to a foot. I remember a long time ago, right after I became a Christian, I went to a, a Cal Berkeley game. And I was just caught up in the excitement and the glory. And just the team was winning. And, and I was thinking, I don't even know anybody out there on that team. Why should I even care? If they lost, I would really not care. And you think about it. We share by putting the logos on our cars and on our clothes and our hats. We're sharing in the glory when we put those on. We don't wear a losing team's hat, that's for sure. But it's really interesting. Whether it's Juicy Couture, which I didn't really get at first. My wife had to educate me on that. I'm like, what the heck is that? Or Coach, the bags that we carry. I mean, I start watching people and I look at them and I go, wow, they must be successful. They're not. I find myself doing that evaluating that. Or whether you drive a BMW, and I know Subaru drivers out there, you can't get away with it because, in a sense, you're the outdoor person. You don't want to be too flashy, but you want, you know, you're the outdoor Central Oregon person. The BMW is like, oh, man, they're, the, they're in sales. I know it. <laughs> or it might be even good things, like the Bono's red campaign, the red thing. In a sense, by wearing, we may not have contributed a single dime to Africa or starving, but we wear the cool shirts or whatever, and we share in that glory. Or Lance Armstrong. I found myself wearing the yellow bracelets, and I don't know anybody close to me who has cancer or died of cancer. And I find myself, it's more about living life to the fullest. I want to share in that glory. Go to the next slide. And this one is just like kind of cracks me up. And I don't know if this is a real ad, but I found this. I said, iPod, if you don't have one, you're a loser. <laughs> and it's true. Man, I'm glad I have one. Um, but I just love the, the Mac and the Windows commercials because I'm like, I so not want to be like the Windows guy. <laughs> Go to the next slide. Um, this show fascinates me. I haven't watched a lot of them. I watched about five of them. And personally, it's a little bit too um, risque for me. And don't be offended if it's not for you. I, don't, I won't judge you for that. Um, but this show is fascinating, being in the advertising business. Mad Men, as you know, Mad Men stands for Madison Men. And they were the men in Madison Avenue, the, the, the advertising agencies in Madison Avenue, who had the huge accounts in the late 50s and early 60s. And the thing is, it's still going on. I see it. And, um, and I love the, the, the tagline, where the truth lies. And really what's fascinating to me about this show, I think it's a pretty profound show, is these men who crafted this message that to help sell, telling people what makes them fulfilled or happy or what is personal glory, what do you need to have, wearing, having the right clothes, the right house, the right car, whatever it is, the right brand of cigarettes. It's fascinating. These same men who crafted this, this sales pitch are caught up in them, themselves in this show. And they're absolute, and they're achieving it, and they're absolutely miserable. It's incredible. 
There's a verse that says in Psalms, it says, How long, O man, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? And that word delusions was really, as I looked into it, it meant emptiness and vanity. And I think this is an incredible magazine, Vanity Fair. I'm not recommending it, but I think it's an incredibly well-published magazine. Great design, incredible articles, and it's about the people of the world that we look at and say, they're the people of glory. They're the ones with incredible success, incredible wealth, incredible fame. But what amazes me, what absolutely amazes me, is they, got the, they, they, they have the name of the publication right. Empty, fair, vanity. It's a delusion. This is not true glory. It's amazing. In 1 Peter it says, For all men are like grass, and all the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, you know, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And I don't know about you living in Central Oregon. Come from California to Central Oregon. It's like, wow, it's really hard to grow grass here really hard, but I know the secret. It's about edging. You trim it around the edge so it's really neat and tidy and all that kind of stuff. And my wife gets really frustrated because I don't know about you, but man, she finds the flowers bloom and the deers eat them. And, but isn't it so true that when we've all sort of achieved a, a sense of accomplishment or a sense of personal glory, it's so fleeting. It goes so fast. It doesn't last. And um, and uh, it's really interesting. One of, one of the reasons I don't tend to, it's not good for me to enter like design competitions and our industry has a lot of that to get a sense of accomplishments and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's like sending an alcoholic into a bar because I go into it and I want to win. And if I don't win, I'm extremely depressed. And if I win, I got to win again. Really, because I get drawn into it, I get sucked into it. It's really damaging to my soul because I, I struggle. I struggle with how incredibly attractive the glory of the world is. I don't know about you, but I, I do. Go to the next slide. In contrast, I believe that, that, that you know, what is God's glory? It's such a huge topic. I mean, you could like talk about God's glory for there's not enough in eternity to really talk about it. Um, but as Ken mentioned, you know, what is glory? And glory is like the words that I looked at were like honor, splendor, wealth. There's this one word, weighty or heavy or significant, high a sense of status and position, beauty. It just goes on and on and on. It's like incredible, totally awesome. In uh, Second Peter, it says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. God has called us that we might participate in the divine nature. What is that? To me, I see that as glory. It's God's character. That is true glory. It's God's character. It's who he is. It is, yes. What he's done brings glory to himself, but it's who he is, the essence of who he is, is really what his glory is all about. What I think is interesting, his, his creation, his creation of glory and all that he's made and, and done and all the glory that's come out of him came from who he was in Scripture. It talks about it. Spoke, he spoke it into being, out of who he was. And this is to you artists and those on the sales side of business. It's, you always say, you know, artists, oh, they're so sensitive. They take their stuff so personally. You can't help it. It comes out of you. It comes out of you. And when someone doesn't like what you do, it's like, oh, my gosh, I just might as well just shoot myself and, you know, go on. i got to be something else. Give up. Don't give up. Because there's going to be people who don't like your stuff and people who are going to love your stuff. And most, I mean, talk about painful. And those on the other side, just... Just be patient. Just be patient. It came out of who God was. And as I mentioned, I struggle. I struggle with it. I look at the, the world and I go, these people are incredible. They are. There's people in here who are incredible human beings who have achieved incredible accomplishments. And I admire people who, who 
who accomplish things. I think it's incredible, and the things that they do. And, but I struggle with that. I'm, I'm drawn to the glory of the world, but I know it doesn't satisfy. I don't. I know. And in Romans 8, it says, I consider, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings or our present struggle. You know, I'm not suffering. I'm really not. I'm struggling. I'm struggling with, with looking at what the world says is glory and wanting those things and feeling like I need those things to find my sense of identity, but I know it doesn't satisfy. And he says, those struggles, those challenges, those, those things, they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And I love this verse, Romans 8, 28. It says, we know that in all things, God works for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I always have to remember, God's purpose is not to make me happy. It's not. It's not to that I would accomplish this goal in my life or achieve this thing that I want in my life to get the car or the house or the title or the money or whatever it is. It could be a great thing. That's really not God's purpose in my life. He often does bless me with those things. But that's not his purpose. His purpose is for those God foreknew, he also predestined be conformed to the likeness of his son. God's purpose in my life is that I would share in his glory through his character, that I would be like him that I would be humble like Christ. In 2 Corinthians it says, and we all with unveiled faces, when we come to God, just who we are. There's no glory in myself. I have no glory. There's really nothing. I truly am naked of glory. I really am. There's nothing that I have of personal glory. It says, when we come to God like that, with unveiled faces, all we all reflect the Lord's glory, His character. We're being transformed, we're changed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. And that word likeness means portrait, His image. We become like Him in character. That's glory. It's not what we have or what we do or what we accomplish in our life. It's submitting to God out of reverence for Christ. It's humbling ourselves. Um, in Colossians, and this is where the whole title of this talk, my talk came from about glory. I was intrigued with this verse. It's in Colossians 1.27. It says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And this is Paul teaching. And what is that mystery? It's the gospel. It's the gospel that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We come to this world, there's no glory in ourselves. And no matter what we do, we really can't, we can't achieve the glory that we lost, that was lost in the garden. We can't do it. No matter how much money or whatever we do, it's not going to happen. It's through Christ, through Christ dying for our sins. And as we invite him in, it's Christ in us. And the verse goes on, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the glory. It's God's spirit living in us, his character conforming us to be like him. And yes, there will be in heaven. We will, I believe when we get to heaven, heaven to me, it's like, I see, you know, you see the slides with the, with the freaky people sitting around the glass thing, and I'm like, that freaks me out. I'm like, that's weird. I don't understand it. I don't really want to be like that. I believe what heaven will be like, it'll be consumed with the glory of God. And I have no idea what that's going to be like but I know it'll be incredible because there's been moments in my life that I've, in a sense, felt the presence of the glory of God in my life and it's significant. It's heavy. It's weighty. It's overwhelming. And you get caught up in it. And you get a taste of it. And I believe when we get to heaven, that's, what, that's the core of what it's going to be. We're going to be co covered and consumed and caught up in His glory and who He is. It talks about His character. I mean, He will light up the place just by who He is. Think about it. When you, when you meet someone of significance and character, you're like, wow, you're attracted to that person, the character. But you can see someone who's incredibly wealthy, whatever it is, and they're just a jerk, and you're like, oh, man, keep me away from that person. That's why it's important that our kids hang out with people of character. You become like those people you hang out with. But I believe that heaven will be, once again, that's when we'll be totally satisfied. I don't believe on earth it's possible for me to be totally, completely, 100% content and satisfied because it's not until I am once again covered 
in the glory of God that I will experience that and totally caught up in it. What about today? You know, I mean, that heaven, it's just like it's still kind of hard to comprehend at times. But I, I think about what Ken said about, about, you know, if you're a mom, I mean, you sacrifice yourself, your kids. Maybe you put your, your career aside so that you'll raise your kids and you pour into them. You pour your character into them and you humble yourself for them. That's glory. Or maybe you go to the store and someone treats you, the, check, the person at the check stand just treats you just poorly. They're just a jerk. And you, and you let it go. You let it slide. Scripture talks about it's to a man's glory to look over an offense. That's glory. Or you decide that, you know, you're at, at the work, and the workplace can be extremely political, and you don't get the promotion or the title, the raise that you want. Well, maybe it's that God chose not to give that to you, and you submit yourself to God, and you, and you say, God, whatever is your will. That's glory. That's humility. And Christ, in Philippians, it talks about how he had, the ti- he had every right to take the title, but he stepped down. Not only he stepped down, he set aside the title. He died on a cross with people just spitting on him, and he didn't claim his right. And that's the biggest challenge of every day for me as a Christian, to be humble and to not take my, what I believe is my, my right. And to me, that's really what glory is. It's not claiming the position you think you should have or want to have, but it's stepping down and allowing God to work in your life and form you inside to be like Christ. And whatever he does, that's a blessing. And I love the, 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 the verse, and I'll end with this, where, where Moses, he gets a glimpse of God's glory in Exodus. He just gets a glimpse and he gets a taste. And in the prayer of his life from that point on is, God, show me, his, show me your glory. And that's really the, the heartbeat that really should be my heartbeat of my life. So thanks.